0: Is history truly written by the victors, or is it far more complex than that? Could sorcerers and spies be the engine driving many of our foggy narratives and chronologies? Could history be a mere byproduct of human imagination, a composition of objective truth obscured and observed subjectively through even the most sober and unbiased accounts? Today's guest would know better than I, for he is our returning guest, Dr. Richard Spence, author of Boris Savinkov Renegade on the left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. He is a lecturer with Wondrium and the Great Courses Plus. He is a retired professor from the University of Idaho. He joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast to discuss the overlapping worlds of secret societies and secret agents. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with dr Richard
1: Spence so if you look at the French Revolution in 1789 and on you'll find that many of the key figures it are again members of the Grand Orient Lodge in fact you can trace a lot of them back to a single lodge of the Grand Lodge the nine sisters the nine sisters Lodge in Paris the neuf We also had a kind of... because Benjamin Franklin is also a member of that. So there are American Masonic revolutionaries who are also a member of this Nine Sisters Lodge. Now here's the difference. British Freemasonry, the United Grand Lodge of England, partly because it was very closely connected with the monarchy, became the kind of Freemasonry of the imperial establishment. That is, there wasn't anything revolutionary about it. British Freemasonry became the secret society of the imperial elite. And so members of the royal family themselves routinely became members of it. There are lots of conspiracy theories, okay? And a conspiracy theory is just, you know, some story that somebody came up with that seems to work. Could be a good guess, could be a lousy guess, but it's still a theory. It's simply an operative speculative idea. You never take a theory too seriously. But then there are also conspiracy facts. Okay, and there are plenty of those. So sometimes the idea of conspiracy theories thrown around is that anytime somebody mentions the word conspiracy, well, they're just dealing with theories because conspiracies are only theoretical. No, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln by a conspiracy is a fact. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand by a conspiracy is a fact. The conspiracy in the Russian Revolutionary is a fact, and you can go on and on and on and on about it. Right? Um... You can even argue the conspiracy among American colonial patriots to defy their oaths of allegiance to the king, which by the way, as Freemasons, they were sworn to. Because remember, as British Freemasons, they also took an oath to obey the law and the king. So when those American revolutionary Freemasons broke their oath to the king, they broke their Masonic oaths as well.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about where, again, espionage and secret societies overlap, although Crowley won't be the in the spotlight this time. I think there are a couple of characters who you've spent a, a considerable amount of time researching and writing about who demonstrate this overlap, this overlap between Politics and what some people may call the occult, right? And and secret societies, while most of them tend to at least outwardly have political uh, objectives, they also seem to have some occult objectives. And I, I'd like to learn more about uh, what you think of that. And maybe we can start by discussing uh, some of the influences of the Russian Revolution, because they they go back at least I've learned from you, they go back to the French Grand Orient Freemasons. The Russians were very much inspired by the French Freemasonry and their revolutionary ideals. And, uh, you know, many people, when they think of spies, they think of the KGB, they think of the CIA. They may not think of characters from uh, the 18th century and even the 19th century who were involved in espionage, and I think learning about these characters uh, can shed light on what's going on even today, believe it or not. Could you tell us a little bit about this gentleman named Boris and and what drove you to write a book about
1: him? So Boris Savinkov is, in some ways, the kind of forgotten man of the Russian revolutionary era. Which is what interested me in him so again you you know people have heard of lenin and they've heard of trotsky and they of stalin you know you know maybe you've heard of uh kristinsky and rakovsky and others of, of the top bolsheviks and other revolutionary figures but uh not Savinkov. and that was one of the things that kind of interested me i got interested in him back in the 1970s when i was a history grad student at, at uc santa barbara <laughs> and i was basically studying sort of modern russian especially revolutionary era history at the time so i was very interested in the personalities that were coming up and i kept this guy's name kept coming up. mostly he would come up in the memoirs of other people they would sort of mention him being there or me- playing this role and i sort of found out there's there's this whole period you know without going into a whole dissertation on on russian history that Uh, One of the things I always like to remind my students of in a Russian history course is that the Bolsheviks did not overthrow the czar. Okay, that didn't happen. So I tell them that, you know, if you tell me that at the end of the course, I'll flunk you because that's the one thing you should know. So there are really sort of two revolutions in Russia in 1917. There's one that happens in February, March, and there's one that happens in October, November. You know, what we call the October revolution now happens in november because the russians used a slightly different calendar that was about two weeks behind the western calendar that's where you find these kind of the variation in dates that were involved so it's the so-called march revolution let's call it that in which not the bolsheviks who had nothing to do with the march revolution they're not involved in it in any way The March Revolution was basically a coup d'etat, and it was a coup d'etat carried out mostly by the political leadership of the Russian parliament, or Duma. So one of the things that Tsar Nicholas had permitted, one of the things that an earlier upheaval had created about 10 years before, in 1905, was a parliamentary system in Russia. it didn't have that much power and that's what it was parliamentarians were kind of pissed off about that was their main beef with the czar but there had been this parliament that had you know functioned sort of as parliaments do um it hadn't been very successful as a legislative entity but what it did do is it provided this kind of gigantic club for political interests in russia so so these people are not revolutionaries they would they would mostly be what might be termed russian liberals that is they were reformers but by no means were in fact many of them were were industrialists and wealthy businessmen now this was kind of like the u.s congress full of rich people so those are the guys that actually i would say in all fairly speaking they put together a coup d'etat a political conspiracy and in march 1914 precipitated a crisis You know, very familiar to the kind of regime change we see today, which got lots of people into the streets and called out the troops and placed stress in society. And that was the pretext for what was basically kidnapping Tsar Nicholas II and forcing him to abdicate. So that, again, is one of these little details. Nicholas II did not abdicate willingly. He was basically taken prisoner in everything but name uh, and essentially told that if you ever want to see your son, who he's very attached to, you and the rest of your family again, you will abdicate. And apparently the whole abdication document had already been drawn up ahead of time for him to sign. So it was a put-up deal. So the so-called Revolution of 1917 is more a parliamentary coup by the Russian political elites than... It was a revolution in that sense, and, and by the way, the second revolution in October, when Lenin and his Bolsheviks seize control from the government that took over after the Tsar, a thing called the Provisional Government or Temporary Government, that too is a coup d'état. It's you know this isn't a kind of mass popular revolution with millions of people. That it was essentially an organized military operation to seize control of the key buildings in the government and Petrograd. So that's that's what we're talking about the Russian Revolution. You're talking about these political conspiracies and coups at two points in 1917. So the first place I came across Boris Savinkov was as an important figure in that in that interim government, in that provisional government. So the best way to describe that is that the provisional government lasted for about eight months. It was unstable, um, always very weak, because in many ways it didn't enjoy a lot of legitimacy. It was not a government that had been elected, really. And it also saw a power struggle between different political interests. OK, Here, here's politics for you. You get a group of conspirators who all agree that we want to get rid of Nikki. okay nikki Nicky's got to go and we should replace him. Yeah, we can all agree upon that. Well, once he's gone, once the thing that you've the this, the the centerpiece of your unity, the thing that you're unified against is gone, you begin to turn on each other. And then it becomes really a kind of free-for-all of political factionalism and individual ambition. So the provisional government had all kinds of political interests in it. It had everything from fairly conservative business figures to people who were constitutional monarchists, you know, who, who didn't want Nicholas as Tsar, but they still wanted a Czar. And then it had different varieties of socialists. So here's another one of those things. It's very interesting to understand about the Russian Revolution. Lenin and his Bolsheviks are not the only revolutionary game in town. In fact, in 1917, they're a fairly minor faction. There are several different revolutionary parties or factions. And in fact, the biggest revolutionary party in Russia, overwhelmingly the largest in sheer numbers, was the thing called the Party of Socialist Revolutionaries, or the SRs. So if you ever look in the history of the Russian Revolution, you see references to the SRs, or the Socialist or Social Revolutionaries. Those aren't the Bolsheviks. Those are a completely different party. And again, to keep it simple, the the SRs were more anarchist than marxist in their orientation so what i mean by that is that lenin and his bolsheviks you know the guys that will become the commies they are marxian socialists and marxian socialism is all about the working class the proletariat remember that the the key idea in marxian socialism is that the future belongs to the proletariat, to the industrial working class. They are the future. All other classes will in some way either become extinct or they will be subsumed into the proletariat. The Bolsheviks argued that they were the party, you know, as the Communist Party would argue, we are the party of the industrial working class, okay? We're not the party of anybody else. We're not the party of the middle class. No, 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 no. We're not the party of the peasants. We're the party of the people of the future, the industrial working class. So Marxian socialists, like the Bolsheviks, are, are fundamentally indifferent to peasants. Because at most, what they see the peasants are is a kind of just human raw material. You know, the peasants are just the workers of the future. Peasants are creatures from a archaic economic system, and they'll be brought into a new one. So peasants themselves are unimportant, except we need them to grow food. So that's also part of the whole antagonism that if you you basically look at the communist regime in Russia through Lenin, through Stalin, they never have a good relationship with the peasantry because they just really don't care about them and they don't really offer them that much. They're all about the future working class. The SRs, on the other hand, believed that the key class in russia was the peasantry so if the bolsheviks viewed themselves as the revolutionary party of the proletariat the working class the sr saw themselves as the revolutionary party the leaders of the peasantry and they, they thought the peasants already existed in this kind of natural anarchic socialist system and that therefore they didn't really have to change much you just had to remove the oppression of the state on the peasants and they'd be fine So, now if you actually looked at the social makeup of Russia at this time, 80 to 85% of the population, are guess what? Are they industrial workers? Nope, they're peasants, okay. This is overwhelmingly a peasant country. So now you gotta ask yourself a simple question. If you are numerically the largest revolutionary party representing a group that constitutes 80% of the population, How can you lose? Yet the reality is, is that the SRs lose. This is why you don't hear about it today. I mean, they they were the main obstacle to Lenin and his crews gaining power. The main thing you had to overcome were your revolutionary rivals. And therefore, one of the first things that Lenin did was to suppress the SR party and everyone connected to it. The, the, the first show trial, the first sort of trial where people were, you know, put up on charges, legitimate or not, of treason and counter-revolutionary activity occurred in 1922, and it was the leadership of the SRs. And the whole purpose of that was to demonstrate that the SRs were not and never had been legitimate revolutionaries, but they'd always been the hireling of the capitalist or somebody else. I mean, it was total bullshit, but that's what show trials are for. <laughs> So Boris Savonkopf, notice I keep trying to come back to him, Boris Savonkopf is an SR. That's the party he's connected to. And not only was he an important revolutionary leader in the SR party before 1917, he was also a prominent leader of the SR's terrorist wing. Now, here's another thing about the SRs. Lenin and his Bolsheviks were perfectly willing to go in for political violence. You know, they were willing to, willing to rob banks for money and they were willing to attempt an occasional assassination of a government official. But the SRs made terrorism a kind of sacrament of their party. I mean, they were into it. They, they sort of embraced the whole anarchist idea of propaganda of the deed, which basically meant sh- shooting or blowing up someone in authority. And and that's that's really why if you look before nineteen seventeen, if you look at the czar's government battling revolutionaries, they're mostly battling the SRs. They barely even notice the Bolsheviks. They're, they were they weren't a really really a significant threat. The only revolutionary party this, that presented a real threat to the regime were the SRs. So Savinkov is an interesting guy. This is what intrigued me about it. One, he's he's an outspoken proponent of terrorism in the early twentieth century. He, by the way. Doesn't actually commit any terrorist actions himself. He recruits and trains other people to do it. That's that's where you have you know longevity in that kind of business. But he's you know he fully believed in in terrorism as a as a political tactic. Okay, it was entirely acceptable in his view to murder your opponents. Um, but he also has a kind of interesting background. He's born. He's he's a nobleman. His father was in fact a, a military judge. And Savinkov is a is a member of what is called the, the gentry in Russia of the, of, of the noble class. And the interesting thing about Russia is you could work your way into the nobility by two different means. You could either you, you could become a commoner, and you could become a hereditary noble in a single lifetime by service to the state. Yeah. You know? And you could either do that by performing a governmental job or through military ranks. So there were sort of paths to this upward mobility. So Boris Savinkov is a hereditary nobleman by birth. That is, he comes from a fairly privileged, you know, not a very rich, but a privileged background. He had access to university education. By the way, that's something he has in common with Lenin, because Lenin also, guess what? Is by birth a hereditary nobleman. His father was a was a imperial school official who had gained hereditary status through his service to the state. Again, now they, these weren't people of great wealth, but they were people of some prominence of social position, and they were in the ranks of the nobility. And remember, the nobility constituted you know, less than two percent of the population. So that you you sort of you know you entered the elite. And this is another kind of phenomenon that you find. Another thing I thought was interesting about Savinkov was that what you have here, and you find this among a lot of revolutionaries, and you find this in the case of Fidel Castro. Look at his background. Look at how he grew up. Look at who his father was. Look at what his opportunities were. And what you tend to find is that prominent revolutionary figures all seldom come from the oppressed lower classes. They're almost never the son of a dirt farmer or a factory worker. Instead, they tend to be the sons or daughters of the middle or upper classes. They're, they're generally born into affluence and education. And they inter- it's an interesting thing about it that in some ways they kind of become traitors to their class. I mean, you know, really, from his birth, Savinkov had all the advantages of czarist Russian society open to him. Mm. All he had to do was keep his nose clean, do what he was told, and he, you know, he had to take it for life. But instead, he joined a revolutionary movement, a, a, a party that represented the peasantry. And let's face it, he wasn't a peasant. Okay, He'd never worked a plow in his life, and he wasn't going to. But he was sort of, you know, believe that somehow that he represented a a personal force that would that could aid these people because there's there's another thing you tend to look at revolutionary movements if you look at the leadership there's always this condescension towards the masses i mean after all who are you to argue that in some way the universe god whatever has appointed you as the savior of the masses the savior of people that really you have no real knowledge or connection of, and are really just this kind of abstraction to you in a way. So I thought that Savinkov was an interesting figure because he was a kind of counter Lenin. You know, he he kind of came from the same social background as Lenin. He gravitated to revolutionary politics like Lenin, although an SR as opposed to a Marxist. And then he actually attained a position of some importance because. We go back to this provisional government, this eight months of kind of chaotic regime between the fall of the czar and the seizure of power by the Bolsheviks. Savinkov became one of the most important figures in that government. So usually, if anybody talks about the provisional government today, they connect it to the name of the man who became its most prominent leader, Alexander Kerensky. Might have heard, you know, if, if anybody ever mentions Kerensky, they'll sometimes mention, you know, Alexander Kerensky he was the first, you know, democratic leader of Russia. Well, he wasn't, he was never elected to do anything. He was a you know a would-be dictator, you know, a guy with a strongman complex. Um, but Kerensky becomes the key figure, but Savinkov was his number two. Savinkov was like, you know, Savinkov was his boy. So when, uh, when Kerensky decided that he would uh, go become prime minister in place of becoming minister of war, the office he'd held before, then Savinkov steps in as minister of war. So Savinkov was, was a fairly important figure. He gets involved in political intrigues. He actually gets involved in this effort to overthrow his boss, Kerensky, because what Savinkov wanted to do more than anything in the world was he wanted to be the ruler of Russia. That's how you have to explain him. And therefore, if hanging on to Kerensky's coattails would get him close to that, that was one thing. But once they'd gotten there, then Kerensky was in his way. And that, by the way, was one of the reasons I discovered that Savinkov is seldom remembered or even mentioned. He'll sort of be reluctantly mentioned in people's memoirs because what he managed to do was he managed to bite every hand that ever helped him he was not a loyal follower he was egotistical and ambitious and unscrupulous and he basically managed to alienate everybody I mean you know the bolsheviks hated him but so does everybody else on the anti-bolshevik side of it because he just he seemed to betray every single principle he came across so that also made him interesting to me here's this guy who was a, an important revolutionary figure who's now been basically written out because he became a kind of pariah so i wanted to know what made this guy tick so Savinkov was actually my first choice as a dissertation topic so you know one of the things to get a phd in history you basically have to write a book or think of it this way a very 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 long-term paper and that's your dissertation and it's supposed to be on an original subject that no one has said you know you're supposed to have something new to say about this so i thought that was great you know here's savankov nobody ever talks about him you know i certainly I can find some stuff and i went to one of my professors and here was another sort of important movement I, a moment in my education i went to this fellow whose his opinion i respected uh, he was basically a professor of European socialism. And, and I said, I'm really interested in the Savinkov guy, because, I, you know, I, I think that he's, you know, hasn't really gotten the attention that's due him. And he goes, he goes, well, you know, if there was really anything important about him, then historians greater than you and I in the past would already have written about him. So there's an interesting sort of circular logic here. Because no one has written about him, that must mean because he's unimportant. Mm-hmm. I didn't really buy that explanation, but I knew I wasn't going to get it past him. So I actually went into it, but I always had that topic. I wanted to get back to it. So after I you know, had my degree in hand and I started teaching and I was looking for something to research, that's where I returned to Boris Savinkov. I picked up where I left off. And, you know, it was one of those things. It's, uh, It's a hunt for information. It's like mining. Guys, you have to dig through a lot of rock and dirt to eventually find any kind of pay dirt that you're looking for. But if you keep digging, you usually find it. So what did I discover about Savinkov other than his upper class origins, his attraction to the SRs, his overweening, uh, you know, um, his drug addiction, <laughs> his morphine addiction, um... His his utterly unscrupulous treatment of most of the people around him. So, um, well, one of the things I discovered is that he was a Freemason. Okay this see, this is the first place I really sort of seriously encountered the role of secret society, something which up to that point, quite honestly, I like most people, had never paid any attention to. I mean, I knew there were Freemasons. My grandfather was a Freemason, full disclosure. And that whole side of the family was. Uh, But, you know, that didn't really mean anything to me. That was just apparently a club that Grandpa belonged to. And, of course, Freemasonry means different things in different places at different times of history. So where was one of the first places I ran across this? Well, Kauf again, was a fairly important figure in this interim government. He had some authority. And one of the problems is that uh, among the Romanov family, I mean, the Romanov family was was a large collection of people. It wasn't just Nicholas and Alexandra and their kids, because Nicholas had a small horde of cousins, aunts, uncles, and others. So he was it was really this very large. It was a very large family, sixty to hundred people, and there was one of them. <clears throat> uh, a direct relative of the Tsar, uh, the Grand Duke Alexander Mihailovich. And it also turned out that the Grand Duke Alexander Mihailovich, a member of the imperial family, was also a Freemason. Now, the problem was that in the orders of the provisional government, Alexander Mihailovich, because he was a member of the imperial family, had basically been placed under house arrest. He wasn't allowed to leave the town he was in. And Savinkov got control, became, basically became the military governor of this town. And Savinkov himself says that you know that the grand duke came to me. And basically said, look, you know, we have nothing politically in common. I know that you view me as a kind of enemy and a a possible obstacle to your regime. He goes, I really don't have anything against the the regime change in this case. I just want to get myself and my family out of this town because I don't think we're safe here. And I'm not sure you can guarantee our safety. And then the Grand Duke said, and I appeal to you as a brother Freemason to help me. That was the card that he played. I'd never seen that before. But that is one of the things that you're supposed to, you know, if you can appeal to another Freemason to help you. Now, you know, supposedly they can't break the law to do that or anything else, but they they are obliged through their oaths to the order to help a brother in need. And Seven cough helped him. And his argument was it wasn't because I liked him or I sympathized with him. In some ways, I kind of hated everything the Grand Duke stood for. But on another level, he is a Brother Mason, and he has asked me for aid. And in accordance with my oath, I have to help him. And he did. And that was one of the first places that I became aware that, in some ways, the, only, the, the, the important thing often about the connections or the bonds that secret societies, fraternal orders, whatever you want to call them, can do is they, they'll create this completely different nexus of connections to people that otherwise aren't visible. So this, again, was a case. Savinkoff and the Grand Duke were, com- were political opposites. They shared nothing in common. Other than the fact that they were both members of the Masonic lodge, but that was enough that at a key point, probably Alexander Mikhailovich's life was saved by the aid of this revolutionary Mason that he appealed to. So I then began as I went through and as I was sort of you know working on Savinkov's biography, which is called Renegade on the Left or a Savinkov. Um that I simply began to note all the people he came in contact with that were mentioned as being Freemasons. And one of the things I began to find is that, well, you know, a lot of these were most of the political figures, most of the key political figures in the revolutionary parties, in the liberal parties, even in the imperial family. So again, one of the things to note. That is, there were adherents of Masonic lodges in the imperial family itself, in the direct entourage of the Tsar. Not Niki, he wasn't, but lots of his uncles and cousins were. And in every one of the revolutionary parties, so Lenin probably wasn't a Freemason, at least for any length of time, but there were other Bolsheviks who were. Um, The S.R.s and the Mensheviks were, were, were full of them. So I began to find out that this this was one of these things. It was this whole sort of nexus that connected these people across political lines and ideology. So that's really working on Savinkoff is is how I became aware of at least how that secret society seemed to work. The other thing I eventually put together further along as I've continued to work on that, and I think one of the important roles in, in the whole Russian political and revolutionary nexus was this was the influence of what you'll call political Freemasonry now this is one of those things that can be a matter of a lot of debate and misunderstanding uh, and also in some ways kind of disinformation so at least in the sense of, of American Freemasonry two things you're never supposed to talk about in the lodge are politics and religion they're essentially forbidden topics. And there's a very simple reason for that. Freemasonic membership, ostensibly, is all about fellowship and self-improvement. In other words, you're joining a guy's club, you know, and everybody wants to get along. And, you know, there's no quicker way to start an argument than to bring up politics and religion. So there's a very practical reason why in the Lodge meeting itself, you do not reference politics or religion. On the other hand, once the lodge meeting is ended, once you've finished your official business, once maybe you've adjourned from the lodge to a bar or to somebody's home or somewhere else, it's the same group of people. But now you can talk about politics and religion to your heart's content because you can't do it in the lodge doesn't mean you can't do it outside of the lodge which also doesn't mean you really can't do it in the lodge. And I think I could pretty much guarantee that in a lot of places, in a lot of times, from revolutionary America to revolutionary Russia, there's been a lot of politics discussed in Masonic lodges, because it's just so easy to do. So, you also mentioned earlier that there's this connection between French Grand Orient Freemasonry and Russian Freemasonry. So, let me, let me make a little aside here and explain to anybody who's listening what Grand Orient Freemasonry is and how that fits into the picture. So one of the ways I've described Freemasonry is that it's a house of many rooms. So you've got, now think of it this way, you have a gigantic structure, which we can call Freemasonry. But inside, internally, it's divided into a lot of rooms and compartments and apartments and separate areas. Some of which may be directly accessible to others, and others may not. In other words, it's 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 not a uh, a name that anybody actually owns the rights to. And pretty much, you know, you can set up your own Masonic lodge if you want to. There's nothing that says that you can't. And you can decide what sort of rules and what sort of constitution you want to follow. No one owns the rights to the name. So Freemasonry has been applied to a very broad spectrum of groups over time. So whenever anybody ever tells you that, well, Freemasons can't do this or they can't do that. Well, yeah, maybe most of the time, but I'll bet you if you look around, you'll find some who did. Case in point. Overwhelmingly, Freemasonry is an all-male society. Generally speaking, Masonic lodges in the past and today do not admit women. But if you look closely, you'll find that from the 18th century, when the whole thing becomes popular, there have always been a small number of lodges that admitted women. There was was never any, any lodge that decided they wanted to do that had set themselves up and there were always some who did you know it's like saying you had to be 21 to become a mason well that was true except in cases where they decided that 17 was all right or you had to be 25 and all of those things all of that was subject to sort of local laws and regulations that was one way you could put it so Freemason really became a kind of big deal in Europe in the 18th century. It had been around for two or three hundred years before that in little nooks and crannies. But it became a kind of popular movement. It, it began to sort of gain lots of adherence, especially in the upper classes in society. It became the cool club for the cool kids to belong to. And it began to spread. It spread from an, in England, where it really had got its start, to the continent in France. And there's where you begin to get a difference. In England, Freemasonry was based around a thing called the ugly, or to put it this way, the United Grand Lodge of England and Wales, U-G-L-E. Generally, and that's, that's the thing which is still in London today. And has the date 1717 across it, because that's when the United Grand Lodge was created. Not when Freemasonry was invented. That's not what it means. It's when the United, when a series of existing lodges joined together to create a grand lodge, the United Grand Lodge of England. And that basically is where all American lodges come from. Yeah, you know, it, it follows on the, because of the colonial situation. But so American Freemasonry is an extension of British Freemasonry. And British Freemasonry tended to, again, attract largely people of wealth and education, members of the royal family. Basically, every male member of the royal family has been a Freemason pretty much. I won't say all of them, but most of them have been since the 18th century, with the odd exception of George III. (laughs) So, you know, see, King Georgie of the American Revolution wasn't a Brother Mason, which has always made me wonder if the American revolutionaries, who were not exclusively, but there were a great many Freemasons among them, would ever have rebelled against a Masonic king. They could have worked all of that out. On a, on a Masonic basis between them. And as in that may itself may be an important factor in the American revolution was that George III, unlike his father and unlike his son was not a member of the lodge. And therefore ultimately faced a colonial rebellion that was, you know, Hey, it's unfair to say the American revolution was with some sort of Masonic plot, but there was a very heavy influence the the lodge members and and, and masonic ideas were were very important within it now on the continent on the other hand in france you got you had a different grand lodge you had a different sort of corporate structure and that became the great eastern or the grand orient so if you look at the french revolution in 1789 and on you'll find that many of the key figures in it are again members of the Grand Orient Lodge. In fact, you can trace a lot of them back to a single lodge of the Grand Lodge, the Nine Sisters. The Nine Sisters Lodge in Paris, the neuf Soeur, we also had a kind of, because Benjamin Franklin is also a member of that. So there are American Masonic revolutionaries who are also a member of this Nine Sisters Lodge. Now here's the difference. British Freemasonry, the United Grand Lodge of England, partly because it was very closely connected with the monarchy, became the kind of Freemasonry of the imperial establishment. That is, there wasn't anything revolutionary about it. British Freemasonry became the secret society of the imperial elite. And so members of the royal family themselves routinely became members of it. In France, as a result of the French Revolution, the Grand Orient Lodge became anti-monarchical and anti-clerical. That is, it viewed the Catholic Church and the monarchy as things that needed to be destroyed. And if you look at the French Revolution, you'll see how much that tends to come across. And they cut the king's head off. They de-Christianized France for a while. You know, they, 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 the French revolutionaries, under a lot of Masonic influence, were going to create a, a new sort of goddess of reason in society. So the main difference became this. British Freemasonry became the kind of imperial secret society of the British Empire. It, it supported the imperial structure. It was not revolutionary. Grand Orient Freemasonry, however... From the French Revolution on, always had this anti-monarchical, anti-clerical, revolutionary bent to it. And it spread on the continent. And it was directly transplanted into Russia. In the early 20th century, every Russian Masonic lodge had been seated by French lodges. So not too surprisingly, you find out that in the eve of the Russian Revolution, the biggest Masonic organization in Russia was a thing called the Grand Orient of the Peoples of Russia. Kerensky was a member of that. Savinkov was a member of that. Grand Duke Alexander Mikhailovich was a member of that. And if you look through it, most of the industrial and political leaders in the Russian Empire were members of it. But here's what's interesting about it in another respect. The Russian Empire in 1917 had a population of over 170 million people. How many of those were members of Masonic lodges? Less than a thousand. Biggest number you can come up is somewhere about 600 or 700, 600 or 700 people, mm. maybe it even expand a thousand men, which is what we're talking about. A thousand men in an empire of 170 million people. Now, that is an elite secret society. That is a very small group of people. But they're the people who effectively ran the empire. They are the captains of industry. They are the main figures in revolutionary and in anti-revolutionary parties. They're members of the imperial family itself. But they are bound together by this idea of Masonic brotherhood in this, in this, and in this big concept of the, of the reformation of society. So it sort of fit right in with the whole idea of, of a revolutionary structure. And this is one of these things that, again, made a very important impact on me because not only did it make me aware of the role of a secret society like Freemasonry, but also very often how small these groups are. And and it brought home another sort of lesson generally you can broadly apply to history. And that's that almost nothing ever happens historically because of a mass movement. Because let's face it, you can't get everybody to do anything. Okay. Running human beings is like trying to herd cats. right? The more people you bring into a decision-making process, the more that decision-making process will bog down. Anybody who's ever functioned as part of a committee knows that. Okay. You can make a decision quickly. You and a couple of other people can make decisions. But when there's 16 of you on the committee and you all have to try to get to agreement, it won't happen. Okay, You'll end up at best with some sort of you know fuzzy compromise that won't accomplish anything so or as another way was once put in academia the collective iq of a committee decreases by 10 percent for every person added to it Mm -hmm. till eventually if you make it big enough you reach a point of you know a singularity of idiocy because you've now eradicated any kind of reasoning ability in it Mm -hmm. whatsoever and um you know, uh, this is also a reason why if you look at successful revolutionary movements, despite a lot of talk about, you know, committees and democratic decision making, there's usually one guy that makes the decision. Perfect example, Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Lenin ran the show. Lenin dictated everything. Best example of that was, you know, early on at, uh, you know, at, it, it, at council people's commissar meetings there were people who would note the fact that lenin would very patiently listen to what everyone had to say okay so comrades we're going to talk about this you know where our, our, our policy on food collection from the countryside and uh, if any of you have an opinion about it i'd be glad to hear it and everyone would express their opinion and then he would dictate the decision you know, it's basically the idea that i'll listen to your abuse and then i'll express my views and then we'll do it my way so that's but that and and everyone kind of went along with that. The thing is, is that Lenin had some sort of, you know, he had this kind of psychological whammy over most of the other people so that they would, you know, go along with what he said. He simply bossed them around. They could have outvoted him anytime they wanted to, but they never really did. So those are all I think a, a number of factors. That's that's where Savinkov comes in. Savinkov then went on to uh Well, yeah, he's connected with the provisional government. And, of course, the provisional government gets overthrown by Lenin, partly because of Savinkov. I'd argue. Why? Well, one of the key things in the October Revolution was the Bolsheviks had to seize the Winter Palace. So the Winter Palace is this huge building in St. Petersburg. It's got like a thousand windows and doors. It's not a fortress or anything. It's just this huge open building. And that was where the provisional government, where Kerensky and his ministers had sort of set up their last stand. That, that was the center of, of the government. So what Lenin and, and his Bolshevik coup were going to accomplish, they were going to simply seize the key buildings in the city. They were going to seize the post office, the telegraph exchange, you know, take over communications. And then they were going to take over the Winter Palace because it was the symbol of the provisional government's authority so they were going to send arm and to take over the palace and arrest the ministers of the government thus putting it out of business now there was some effort to protect the winter palace and the protection basically included a a volunteer women's battalion okay and i'm not making fun of women soldiers at this but i'm just saying that these were essentially you know, prep school girls who were not really trained for combat, And then they were joined by a group of male military cadets who were maybe a little better trained, but not much. Basically kids with guns they didn't know how to use. But the only real military force in and near the Winter Palace that actually were experienced soldiers that might have put up a fight were Cossacks. There was a whole unit of Cossacks, that was there. And Savinkov's brother was a, a kind of leader or political commissar among those Cossacks. So he has a direct connection to them. And, and they would kind of listen to him. So what happened is that Savinkov, as a figure in the government, gets a call early in the morning, uh, basically telling him that the, the Bolshevik Red Guards are, are moving in the Winter Palace. And the question was: Should the Cossacks intervene and fight? Should they should they support the, the female and boy cadets, or should they remain neutral? And so, Sevenkov had a very important role at that point. He could have given the order that the Cossacks were to defend the Winter Palace. Out. The end result might have been the same. On the other hand, the Bolshevik Red Guards were again not well trained, and they weren't. Ter- they were they weren't in this to get shot. They were in this to go in and arrest a few guys and break into the wine cellar. That's what they were interested in. So the, you know even a certain amount of gunfire from people who are shooting at you with intent might've been enough to, to change the situation. He basically didn't make any decision. He didn't even he didn't give, oh, I don't know, whether to tell them to do anything one way or the other. He just said, call me back in the morning. And he went back to bed. Okay, that was when he missed his huge opportunity in history. He went back to bed he didn't make a decision the cossacks remained neutral and the and he found out woke up to find that the government he was a part of had been overthrown and the rest of his career was that well you know he eventually had to flee he was an enemy of the bolsheviks and then between 1918 and 1924 he became an enemy of the communist regime and, and again, he returned to terrorism. He he tried to raise troops to fight with the Poles and others. I mean, he he took money from the British to engage in anti-Bolshevik countries. He took it from the French. He took it from the Poles. He would he would essentially take money or aid from anybody who could you know advance his dream of becoming you know the of, of replacing Lenin. That was his whole thing. It was kind of a personal idea. I think you know, Stalin once put it: he "Goes this is the way it'll end up." I'll either put Lenin's back to the wall and shoot him, or he'll put me against the wall and shoot me. But that's what it's going to come down to. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a gun duel between the two of us. Well, this went on, you know, and it, mostly he began to conspire with the British. The British were always willing to put money into people who would create trouble in Bolshevik Russia, and Savinkov seemed to do that. And that's how Savinkov then became connected to another character that through sevenkov i got introduced to the character of sydney george riley okay sometimes known as the ace of spies sometimes called the role model for james bond I hate to disappoint everybody but he wasn't okay he never had anything to do he's not like james bond at all forget it okay but nevertheless that's always that that will stick to him like glue forever mm-hmm. um, but sydney george riley was this other character normally he was a british secret agent He was an agent for British intelligence who sort of was the control for Savinkoff. He would funnel money to him and assist him and so on. Well, let's suffice to say for now that the relationship between Riley and Savinkoff was complicated, and the relationship between Riley and British intelligence was even more complicated. Because... Riley's true allegiance to the extent that he ever actually had one wasn't to the British, and it wasn't to Savinkov. It was to Leon Trotsky, a prominent Bolshevik, Stalin's archenemy, and the chief rival to Lenin while he was alive. Now, there's a whole long background story as to why But it all has to do with Riley's sort of business affairs. And um, I guess since I brought it up, I'll describe it. Riley, uh, before World War I and during the war, was a business partner and a business agent in the United States for a man by the name of Abram Zhivatovsky. Abram Zhivatovsky was a very wealthy Russian businessman. And Abram Zhivatovsky was something else. He was Leon Trotsky's maternal uncle. He's the uncle that Trotsky talks about in his childhood memoirs as being a kind of mentor. And he was always getting he was kind of, you know, Trotsky had millionaire capitalist uncles. And Abram Zhivatowski was one of them, and Riley was Zhivatowski's partner. Now you want to spice this up a little bit more? You know what else Abram Zhivatowski was? Take a guess. A Freemason. (laughs) Riley was. I'll free it. You've got right, Golf. I'll right. free face it. Uh, you have all of the, the, all of the character. This is the other thing you tend to find is that they all again sort of went through. I think it was, you know, and in some ways you don't want to make too much out of this. I mean, I'm not sure there's any, anything specifically in the way of of a kind of Masonic agenda or ideology. But I mean, What it is, it shows you the kind of club that they were part of. That these men, despite their differences, were all part of this same organization, and they had they had a kind of relationship and a, and a kind of abstract loyalty to each other through that. So you know, basically, what Riley and uh, and you know Uncle Abram were trying to do for years was to was to put Uncle Abram's nephew Leon Trotsky in the position of leadership in russia which led them into very interesting but one of the ways that riley had to do that was to sort of sidle up to the british but here again this takes us down a different road the british never trusted riley and for very good reason but he was useful to them and that sort of comes up to one of these things you're talking about, the roles of intelligence operatives or the kind of curious sort of middlemen. Um, but Riley really was more than a spy, is that he was a deal maker. He was the guy that you would send in to work out some kind of arrangement or to, to make things happen. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. He was a person who made things happen and that might be anything from a rebellion to a coup to a business deal mostly it was involved in business but the same techniques existed within politics and the thing i found with riley was that from the very beginning when they when the british when british intelligence first employed him in 1918 there was no trust involved in it. I mean, if, if you look at the kind of information that was gathered about him at the time, from basically from his business affairs in wartime America, it uh, pointed out an individual that was utterly unscrupulous, uh, seemed to have no loyalty other than to his own, would always try to exploit any situation to his own advantage, and was to never be trusted with any confidence. Now, why would you? <laughs> Here's the question. That information, that exact information, went to the chief of the British Secret Intelligence Service, Mansfield Cumming. He got all of this bad information, but he nevertheless then turned around and hired Riley to undertake a secret political mission inside Soviet Russia. So keep in mind... It had nothing to do with him trusting Riley, because all of the information that he'd received had said that this is a person who was fundamentally untrustworthy. But the same report said, this is a person who has a lot of interesting connections and can get things done that other people can't. He has information and he has access. Now, The main thing that Sidney Riley had access to in 1918 is that through his relationship with Trotsky's uncle, he had a personal connection to Trotsky, who was then the Bolshevik commissar for war. And Riley was then being sent in to open a back door to Trotsky. If we can't make a deal with Lenin, maybe we could make a deal with his chief rival. That's the way that you would go. And and that's, but it has to do with the fact that it had nothing to do with ever trusting Riley. In fact, it's, you find this a lot in the realm of intelligence. You'll find intelligence agencies employing people that they know are really just out-and-out crooks in certain ways, you know, completely untrust. Or let's put it this way. Their most outstanding characteristic is that they are reliably unreliable. You know you can't trust them. But you see, there's a certain amount of important knowledge in that. The problem is when you think some you can trust someone and you can't. If you know that the person you're dealing with is completely venal and unreliable, that they will exploit every situation to their advantage, then you'll only use them and trust them as far as you need. The point is they have connections. They, they, they have information that you need. They have connections that you need. More simply put, they're useful. They're not trustworthy, but they're useful. And therefore, you will do what intelligence agencies do. You will use people. You won't make them your friend. You will use them. And that's all What about that's the whole thing in terms of recruiting assets and agents and running them. You're not doing it because you like them. You're doing it because their service can be useful to you. So it's always a system of mutual exploitation in that case. So all of this, you know, going through as complicated as it is, I assure you it gets more complicated than that. But you can see all of these different threads running through things. The Savincon connected with Riley. Riley connected with everything else and running all through this with this constant reference, this, this leitmotiv continually of Masonic association. And that's, I guess, how it all began.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Wow. What a way to start off the show. We're an hour in and I only asked one question. <laughs> and I really, yeah. really appreciate the background there. It's it's really informing to The average conspiracy novice who may be curious about, you know, these parapolitical events and and where it all stems from, you know, without this kind of background, it's easy to fall into the notion that there's some, you know, fantastical Illuminatus that's controlling everything. Now, with that that in mind, you have covered this in, in your Great Courses, The Real History of Secret Societies. And I should say for folks who want more information on what we just talked about, Dr. Spence here has written Boris Savinkov, Renegade on the Left, as well as Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley. So you can pick those books up to get more. I'm sure that work preceding secret agent 666 kind of you saw the parallels between a character like Sidney riley and and crowley in in some way were there any if if any because i mean from what i've understood from my research into crowley he was somewhat of an infiltrator right he infiltrated the golden dawn and then he infiltrates the oto and whether or not this was his intention he seems to have left those organizations a worse for when he joined them and b you only really hear about him when you talk about those groups. So it's like he really kind of cannibalized them. And I know that's a big part of this sort of secret society warfare is to sort of infiltrate from
1: within. Yeah, Crowley's another. Well, by the time I got around to Crowley, I'd, I'd seen enough in, in sort of studying Riley and others. I'd, I'd gotten some sense, not that your sense is ever perfect, about it, but you gotten some idea about how this kind of secret world operated. And, and the types of people who would be involved, and the type of thing that's, that's a cover. You know, one of the things that any kind of intelligence operative has to have is they have to have some reason for being where they are and doing what they're doing, other than being a spy. Because you know, so you have to be there as a businessman, archaeologist, explorer, missionary. You know, one of those. That's why missionaries make great spies because. They have a perfect excuse to be in some remote area where no sensible person would otherwise be. Same thing with an explorer. They go to remote border areas, sort of hunting. around. That's, that's one of the things that the Crowley partly did. And his, you know, part of it is that he was simply a mountaineer. He liked climbing mountains, all right? He liked going on exotic trips, wandering through southern China. But at the same time, there also, if you look closely, there were all sorts of Political things going on that he was a skilled observer there to observe. Mm. And see, that's in some cases all you have to do as a so called spy. All you have to do is keep your eyes open, keep your ears open. Remember what you see, remember what you hear, and then report that later. And it doesn't require you to otherwise engage in any other kind of fancy intrigues. You're just there mm. and you're collecting information.
0: Well, and and on that note, you know, it seems like, Crowley obviously has this reputation as an occultist, and I wonder if that was just a side effect of the fact that America was steeped in that flavor of occultism with the Theosophist movement and the spiritualist movement and the you know Freemasonic groups and all their various variations from the Oddfellows to the Shriners. I mean, this was their heyday. So to be someone who can blend into those milieus would be, you know, advantageous if you were information information gathering and Crowley even, you know, uh, seems to have done that with, like I said, the golden dawn and the OTO sort of planting himself in the right position to get
1: initiated. It was a way to, well, first of all, it was a way of getting into a larger nexus of people. Mm. So one of the things you'd often find is that if you look at some of these occult organizations, if you look at most occult organizations, you'd find that somewhere hidden inside it is a kind of political agenda. So in the hermetic order of the golden dawn you know which on one level was all about alchemy and tarot and they ascended you know and the this the, the secret chiefs was all about occult enlightenment well it also had members who were irish nationalists and celtic revivalists and people who wanted to restore the stuart dynasty in britain as opposed to the to the, the german Windsor's, okay, or saxe coburg give their real name. So, it, it, it comes down to, it's not exactly that the Golden Dawn was specifically about one of those things or another, but it became a vehicle for that to be done. See, you created this kind of order that offered occult enlightenment, and but it drew people together who then found other common interests among themselves, and especially this kind of celtic revivalism irish nationalism you know restoring this the Stuart dynasty which was viewed as a celtic dynasty no their political ambitions were completely unrealistic but most of them are right i mean look lenin's idea of the bolsheviks taking over russia was completely utterly fantastic until it wasn't until circumstances meant that this small group actually was able to take control of the country right so it's, you know, Crowley, I think, was essentially kind of, one, he wanted to be part of the Golden Dawn to figure out what it was about. he He was legitimately interested in occult knowledge. He wanted to acquire that. And he thought they could get it. On the other hand, he was, I am quite sure, encouraged to join that group to figure out what else was going on within it. And the next thing you notice is that as soon as he begins to insinuate himself into the organization, it's like setting off a grenade inside it. Every action he takes is to create disagreement and strife. And the result of it is that Crowley's membership in the Golden Dawn destroys it. It blows it up. It, it simply becomes a catalyst for all of these personal antagonisms that were there it destroys the organization. Um. The OTO is somewhat similar to that. The OTO starts out, of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is still around today, Crowley's version of it. You can join it if you want to, but that started out as a German Masonic occult society. Okay, so it was full of German Masons, ones who were also interested in occult enlightenment. And the key figure that became the, the key the guy that became the key figure in that by 1910 or so was Theodore Royce. But Theodore Royce was, guess what? He was a, an agent of the Prussian political police. He was a spy. He was an intelligence operative for the German government. He ran a spy ring in England. And I'm fairly sure that he recruited Crowley into it as a way of bringing what appeared to be an impressionable and usable Englishman into an organization that was, on the one hand, a legitimate vehicle of occult study and enlightenment. Okay, it's not as if the OTO didn't just pretended to do these things. But on the other hand, it was also a vehicle of German intelligence and infiltration. See, by spreading the OTO across the English-speaking world into other countries, you then created a base of operation for agents that could be moved in and out of it. And that's why in World War I in New York, the Germans in the U.S. trusted Curley. Why would they do that? Why, why on earth would you trust him? The only reason they would trust him is because someone in Berlin vouched for him. And the person in Berlin who vouched for him, or in Germany at least, was Theodore Reuss, mm-hmm. a trusted mm-hmm. intelligence operative who said, this guy is okay. But this again is the way in which you know the the British on the other hand used Crowley because he was useful because he had these he had these connections. So one of the things that they knew is that look here's a guy Um, who probably on our encouragement has joined this German secret society that we're pretty sure is being used as a vehicle for German espionage so that he could get in it and figure out what's going on in the same way that he can infiltrate the German propaganda cabinet in New York and at the same time, let us know everything that's going on, which is what what he managed to do. That sort of double agent, you pretend to be working for one side, you're actually working for another or i don't know maybe you're kind of working for both whenever it's who knows um you know from, from from the side of his employers as long as you're getting the information you want then and he's he's working for you the other thing that i've come to suspect about crowley in his connection with the british was that i also think he was early on at least a kind of specialized hitman which sounds a little bizarre, but that's sort of where his talents lay. In, in addition to magic, Crowley had two very sort of practical skills. One was hypnotism. And the other was um, sort of pharmaceutical you know, chemistry involving psychoactive drugs, things like mescaline. Whether he drove his female paramours mad, you know, it's debatable. You know, you could always argue that, you know, the kind of women who are really attracted to Alistair Crowley might have been slightly inclined to insanity. To be, anyway, you know, I don't... I think mean, some of them seem to be quite normal. He was horrible, though. I mean, this... <clears throat> excuse me, Crowley was a very interesting guy, but in terms of his, not just his treatment of women, but his treatment of any of the people he called his friends is just absolutely abominable. Right. right. And, and and one of the an interesting case for anybody who's interested in an example of that is that one of the the OTO once he eventually sort of took over the OTO or he took over part of it in the 1920s. Royce died and and, and Crowley just kind of proclaimed himself the leader of it. Some people went along with that, some didn't. But the modern OTO you hear about today is largely descended from those that accepted Crowley as leader. Uh, but remember, he never created the OTO and just sort of made himself the, the head of it. The OTO just became this this kind of vehicle. But later on, one of the few remaining parts of it, sort of by the, the 1940s, the only part of Crowley's OTO that really functioned anymore was a thing called the Agape Lodge in Pasadena. Okay. In, basically in Los Angeles. That's the one that Jack Parsons, you know, the rocket scientist famously becomes connected with. Right. But in particular, if you there's a, a history of that, uh, there's a book by Martin Starr, S-T-A-R-R, called the, the Unknown God, which is basically a history of, you know, to a great extent, it's a history of the L.A. O.T.O. and Wilfred Smith, who was the guy who headed it. And Starr, I think, has done a pretty good job of just sort of, crung, you know, he's gone through the correspondence and interviews with the people who were involved. And and Crowley, of course, is always in England in this period, although he's constantly trying, you know, but th- these are the only people that are sort of, you know, generating any money. And it's just, you know, you got people who are doing the best they can to sort of serve this guy's interests, and he treats them abominably. It's not, he was not a... It was a difficult person to deal with um yeah you know, I, 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 I i think he had a hell of a sense of humor in certain ways and um was was a brilliant guy in a lot of ways but in but in terms of his dealings with people he was difficult You mm. can see that by how few people remain loyal to him to the the very end um it was some writer I can't remember. It might have been Dennis Wheatley. I'm not sure. Who had said that the two things that he would never, never certainly do was to either lend Alistair Crowley money or to leave him alone with his children. So, yeah, but, which were probably probably good advice in that case. So, um, but again, if you if you look at Martin Starr as the unknown God, if you want to get a little picture as to just how abusive and and selfish Crowley could be in in dealing with you know his servants in a sense or people who believed in him and his ideas that would be an example of it uh no the the thing about crowley being a a kind of specialized hitman is that his knowledge of things like hypnotism and drugs gave him and also of a lot of sort of, of underworld activities um Another thing that, that Crowley had a fair amount of insight to that, you know, Crowley was kind of, I don't know, maybe kind of pansexual. I don't know. I mean, he certainly didn't have anything against the occasional sodomy. But in the end, what you can't really say that Crowley was specifically gay. He had knowledge of, let's say, the sexual underworld of the early 20th century, you know, which at that time was something that existed. And it was occulted. Think of it this way. You know, that homosexual society was another example of something that was generally hidden, you know, that might manifest itself through a whole variety of signs. You know, people who were gay could recognize certain things that other people wouldn't. This was a way of sort of keeping it secret and hidden. So, Crowley had some knowledge of that. He had knowledge of all sorts of you know, occult associations between different groups and how that was exploitable. And he had means of influencing people and getting rid of them in ways that wouldn't ordinarily look like murder. <laughs> so, um, that, it, it's, it, that actually was, it was an idea that arose out of a conversation with someone else. We were talking about various things that he'd been doing. I don't think there was all there was to it, but I think that he had certainly skills, unique skill set, and that could be applied to influence people without their knowledge
2: hmm.
1: and by that i mean by hypnotizing them by using hypnotic suggestion and reinforcing that or using otherwise drugs to do so and those were things that could be used to get information from people and there also means that could be used to destroy people without leaving much of a trace right
0: Right. You know, I don't want to spend too much more time on Crowley because, you know, we have spoken about it and you're very well versed in so many other things beyond him that it is worth spending time talking about him because we're sort of backtracking, at least in my mind. I want to backtrack and go into maybe the roots of this country. On the point that you made earlier about Freemasonry, it's interesting. I was looking into one of the fundamental constitutional orders of the colonies. This is the proto government of the the New Haven colony, the Hartford, which would become the Connecticut colony, sort of had a similar thing going on. And this is the famous Charter Oak story where they hid the the charter from the dominion of New England and secured their sort of freedom for the time being. And that sort of helped foment the, the revolution. Right. And in this fundamental orders of the constitution in New Haven, they use this term "freeburger," or free man all the time. And you know, at that time in the 17th century, Freemasonry hadn't been established the way it was in the 18th century, but it was still, it existed, right? I mean, it it was in the minds of people through guilds and through maybe the Rosicrucian sort of thing that was going on in the Royal Society as well, which influenced the founding of the Grand Lodge of Freemasonry, as well as the founding of Yale University, which is what I had been looking into And, you know, to maybe complicate things a little bit more, you also have this German element with the perfectibilists and what is most commonly known as the Order of the Illuminati. And famously, Skull and Bones finds itself with this same sort of origin. We're told that it's a second chapter of a much older German institution. And the founders, William Huntington Russell and uh, Alfonso Taft, went to the University of Berlin and were inspired by Hegel. And then they came back to Yale, which, to my knowledge, uh, was a sort of Anglican, Freemasonic sort of position, at least philosophically at that point in its time. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, what this may mean within the synarchy, the the war of these secret societies, you know, for who could be at the top of the synarchy. Maybe we can speak to that foundation of Freemasonry in America and then maybe talk about some of the foreign interests that came in and invaded it or infiltrated it in in various ways. This is just a suspicion of mine that that the German uh, chapter that became Skull and Bones at Yale had some sort of role as infiltrators, but I could be wrong. It's just a suspicion.
1: Well, I guess it comes down to the, the you know the sixty four thousand dollar question. There, I guess, is is Skull and Bones the American filial of the Illuminati? That is, is this is German society that they're talking about being descended from itself an offshoot, directly or indirectly, of Adam Weishaupt's Bavarian order perfectibus, i.e., the Illuminati? The most you can say to that is maybe, because otherwise you don't know. This is uh, the problem. <clears throat> I think what often happens is, is that what you know, what we humans really like to have is we like to have things explained. We want a narrative. We want a story that explains this to us. And, we, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that story has to be true. It just means that it has to be plausible in some way, or it's what it is that we want to hear. But that's what we do continuously. And, you know, I can if you'll excuse another side here, I, I can give you an example of this right now. Okay, I live in Moscow, Idaho, and if anybody has been paying attention to the news, you know that uh, some weeks back, there was a very grisly murder of four students at the University of Idaho, and that there's recently been a fellow who's been arrested for that and is currently being arraigned, and this is a big deal in my town, uh, because those things don't really happen. But one of the things that you know we've endured, anybody who's taken an interest in this case, is that the one thing you knew is that four young people were all knifed to death in the middle of the night. And there was a... There was just a barrage, this constant mutating monster of myth out out of Reddit and 4chan. You know, YouTubers who would just come up with these, you know, for the most part, absolutely, and I don't use this term lightly, idiotic nonsense to explain what was going on. I mean, they had no... but. What they could do is they would come up, they would just seize upon these things. Well, it has to be this person and that person. And then, you know, they would begin sort of twisting and adding to these things where they could, you know, they, they could come up with some sort of seemingly plausible story that it would indict this person or it was this or it was that. And, you know, in the end, what it turned out to be? None of that. OK, as far as we can tell, I mean, if this guy that had gotten his guilty, no one ever saw this guy. This was not on anybody's radar. But you ended up with all of these, but because there was there's there is just this this kind of mania about being able to explain what has happened. So these four young people were all were all knifed to death in the middle of the night. Well, it could be this, it could be that, and and the mind just sort of goes, you know, I'm, I'm into overload, trying to come up with different explanations for this. Well, the thing to keep in mind is this happens with everything. It's happened with every historical event. And you'll, you'll, this is why you tend to find a whole variety of, you know, what are often dismissed as conspiracy theories about how things operate. So, uh, give you my two cents on conspiracy theories. Okay. There are lots of conspiracy theories, okay? And a conspiracy theory is just, you know, some story that somebody came up with that seems to work. Could be a good guess, could be a lousy guess, but it's still a theory. It's simply an operative, speculative idea. You never take a theory too seriously. But then there are also conspiracy facts, okay? And there are plenty of those. So sometimes the idea of conspiracy theories thrown around is that anytime somebody mentions the word conspiracy, well, they're just dealing with theories because conspiracies are only theoretical. No, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln by a conspiracy is a fact. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand by a conspiracy is a fact. The conspiracy in the Russian revolutionary is a fact, and you can go on and on and on and on about it. Um, You can even argue the conspiracy among American colonial patriots to defy their oaths of allegiance to the king, which, by the way, as Freemasons, they were sworn to. Because, remember, as British Freemasons, you also took an oath to obey the law and the king. So when those American revolutionary Freemasons Broke their oath to the king. They broke their oh the masonic oaths as well. So they weren't perfect in that regard. There was there was a kind of question because the Freemasonry sort of bound you to the king, except oh, apparently it oh. was inconvenient for you.
0: And you do have a, a large faction of what were called loyalists who, you know, either remained in the United States until they saw, you know, what really the outcome was, or they fled to Canada, right? I mean, there's a great f- contiguous.
1: Uh, well, they got card you know, and feathered and burned out. I mean, there was, there was yeah. a lot of unpleasantness of a lot of the kind of subsequent history of the American revolution, the kind of, you know, popular history of the American revolution tended to, to really sort of pretty things up. I mean, there's always this sense that there was a war going on, but you don't really get much description of the war. You get description of the suffering at Valley Forge, the Battle of Bunker Hill, the siege of Yorktown. But there's almost no discussion of the military history of the war because, you know, one, it's kind of chaotic and, and unstable. But the other point is that nobody really wanted to talk about the war, which involved you know, everything from punitive expeditions against loyalists to, uh, you know, the British, you know, the British were perfectly willing to arm slaves, which they were pointing them around. Okay. You got this whole problem. <laughs> it was, this is, you know, without getting too far into anything, I mean, th- th- there is a kind of, of double think, which goes on among the revolution, because remember, all of the talk in this was about liberty and human rights and individual dignity this was the whole thing this is supposed be what it's all about right and yet at the same time the same group of people the same continental congress the same framers of the constitution the same founding fathers who could embrace all of these very lofty ideas about the inherent rights of man could accept slavery in fact a great many of them had no problems Owning other people while at the same time extolling the virtues of freedom and dignity. And that's you know that, that's that's a problem which has gone on. Is if you do tend to look at you know much of the dissension in this country today, it's it's still based upon those two things of you know, on the one hand trying to of adopting the lofty goals of freedom and liberty and combining that with the institution of slavery. Okay, and it doesn't matter in this case as to what race the slaves were. The simple fact is the institution of slavery was embedded against a country which otherwise embraced freedom. And those two things just really don't fit. And so not too surprisingly, that became the whole thing that led to a civil war some decades down the road, which still didn't quite work things out. So it's a... People like to build narratives around things. This is where you get all these different views of of history. And I'm going to say a strange thing from the standpoint of a professional historian. But I will say this from somebody who's been involved in the study of history, Russian and otherwise, about all number of things, healthy and unhealthy, for the better part of 50 years. And I would say that... Much of what is commonly understood about history is essentially a false narrative or partly false. It's a story which is created to explain things, but it probably only bears slight resemblance to what happened. And it's, I guess, another kind of example I could give. Last night, a local theater gave a showing of David Lean's uh, Lawrence of Arabia. You know, this this early 1960s big epic with Peter O'Toole. Most people have seen part of it. This was the whole three-hour and 44-minute version, you know, which was great to see. It's, it's, it's an outstanding film, but it only is kind of barely connected to reality. I mean, the, the, the people in the film were real. Lawrence was real. Prince Faisal was real. You know, uh, the Arab Revolt was real. So in, in the broad in in and Lawrence was a strange guy. I mean, the one thing you come across in that film is that you know Lawrence is, is Lawrence is an odd bird. You know, he's kind of hard to figure out. And Peter O'Toole does a great way of, of portraying that. But in most of the details, it's it's a screenplay. You know, that's if you were, you know, if you read more about Lawrence, if you tend to look at his career, you, you know, if you even look at his writings, you'd find out that that is not a, an accurate portrayal of him or the time or anything. In broad outline, it is. Uh, you know, the British encourage the use, you know, uh, Lawrence and other officers like him to encourage the Arabs to revolt. And after they'd done that and the Turks were defeated, they screwed them over. That's all pretty much what happened which the film tells you is what's going to happen from the very beginning. So it's both, it's one of those things, It's Lawrence of Arabia is a narrative that in broad outline gives you an idea as to who these people are and what they were doing. But in a lot of the details and individual interpretation, it's just invented. It, it's not something that has any kind of real bearing in reality. And most history is like that. I mean, it's, it's the same reason why you know people can go out and write multiple biographies of people. Because if, if everything was known about George Washington, you'd only have to have one book. That would be it. That would tell you every single thing you'd know about it. But no, someone else could interpret it this way or that way. And what it comes down to, the reason why there's the room for all of these narratives is because we don't really know what's true. And we never will. I mean, whatever happened, happened in an instant. Very often, only a very few people were ever involved in it. And they would usually have reasons to interpret what happened from their own individual perspectives. I mean, after all, what what evidence is less reliable than eyewitness testimony? (laughs) Two people in the same place at the same time, they don't see the same thing. Now, is it as simple that one is telling the truth and the other one is lying? Maybe. Or it could be that they both completely believe that whatever it was, their perceptions of what happened were true. I mean, that's what their brain seems to record. To them, that's real. To the other person, that's real. Right. Right. And and that's actually fairly easy to explain, to keep in mind, that even if you and I are in the same place at the same time, we're not looking in exactly the same direction. Mm. Right and we don't really see quite the same thing you know the best way to put it we're all in the same place at one time and but i'm facing this way and you're facing that way so we don't see the same thing so our perceptions of what happened will not be identical they'll only compare on a certain basis so that's the thing see reality happens fast it happens so fast that by the time we've realized it's happened it's gone Right. No, nah, this is getting it, but it's never really there. The moment never actually exists. It's either up to the moment or it's after the, or it's the consequence of the moment. And when we barely recognize it when it's happened. And that's all that history is it's this constant series of moments that are never really there and are only briefly recorded by anybody in a kind of nanosecond of very individualized, very subjective experience. And then what we try to do is we try to collect all of this this type of thing, and and put it together and come up with some sort of picture of what actually happened. And you'll never get the actual picture of what happened. We'll never know. So there always this room for interpretation. There's always room for adding something else because you never have everything. And as frustrating as that can be. You know, to basically say that you're never going to get the complete story, you're probably never going to get the true story about everything, that to me is what makes it interesting, because it becomes this constant, eternal quest for that. You may not know everything, but you can always know more. If you arrange the pieces in a slightly different way, you're going to get a slightly different picture. And maybe that one seems a little clearer than the other one does. Or, of course, maybe it just seems clear because that's the one you prefer. See, that's the other problem, objectivity, okay? There's this whole idea that we are to, in exploring something, especially in history, that you to be objective about it, which means you're not supposed to have a point of view of your own. All you're doing is investigating. All you're doing is trying to collect details, facts, and you're trying to assemble them together into a story that seems to account for all of those facts, which seems to make some kind of logical sense. And you're supposed to do that dispassionately. And in some cases you can, but let's face it, the only thing you can really do that dispassionately is something you have no real interest in. The minute you take an interest in something, you begin to develop a point of view about it. So let's go back to Boris Savinkov. I initially thought he was just an interesting guy. Because he's this kind of blank. So I wanted to know more about him. And there was a kind of of transition as I was writing that book, as I was collecting all of this material, and as I was putting, you know, I I was taking this person's life and I was putting it together in a narrative. Okay, so keep in mind that book is a story that I assembled about this person's life from the material that I collected. So initially, I thought that he was interesting. I even thought that you know maybe he was kind of vaguely heroic because he seemed to be kind of interesting. But then the more you begin to know about him, the more I began to realize that you know, Mill in some ways, was just kind of a megalomaniac and an asshole. Right? You know, he's and you you could then be see st- all the faults would come through, and. And so, you know, somewhere by the middle section of the book, I'd gone from, you know, a kind of, you know, early quasi-hero worship to thoroughly disliking him. And, you know, just, that uh, this is not a good person at all. But then, by the time I got to the end of it, I'd reached a point of a kind of sympathy. You know, not really viewing him as heroic nor as villainous, but just as what else, as a flawed human being. A man who had all kinds of ideas and ambitions that he never really quite lived up to. Um, Someone who could justify doing all kinds of disreputable and dishonest things if he thought it served his own particular selfish interests, which made him distinct from who. And so in the end of it, I thought this was a guy that... You know, the the way that he ends his life is that having spent years as this, you know, center of anti-Bolshevik intrigues, what does he do in 1924 with Sidney Riley's encouragement and help, by the way? He surrenders to the Bolsheviks. He goes to Moscow. He gives himself up and he goes on trial and spills his guts about all of his connections, about all the foreign governments he had dealt with. All of the French and British money he had taken, all of the other Russians uh, involved in the opposition who had been part of it, he turned, and, he, and that really was a thing. That meant that everyone in the Russian anti-communist opposition hated him after that because he turned on them, and he did. And what did he get out of that? Uh, he got a death sentence, you know, which certainly under Soviet law deserved. I mean, there wasn't any doubt about that. But they suspended his death sentence. And he thought he was going to spend a few years in prison and then he would get out and he would go to work for the communists. And then some months later, he probably not accidentally fell out of his prison cell window. <laughs> a After he served scene. his purpose. He was whacked. I mean, I think it's pretty clear <laughs> yeah. that he was yeah. killed. Yeah. Um, but it comes into all kinds of, co- but that's, you know, the, the, But it's one of those things where I don't completely leave out the possibility that he simply killed himself. Because there was one person who I think who knew him pretty well, and it's always stuck with me. He goes that, you know, Savinkov essentially ended his life because it became unbearably dishonorable. He just couldn't figure... This was a person who believed that he, he couldn't figure out how to live with himself anymore. And I'm not sure... Even if I don't think that he jumped out of the window, which I really don't think he did, I think that he knew when he went back and gave himself up that it was a kind of suicide. I I don't think at that point he believed that he, because he didn't know whether they were going to shoot him right away or not, but it was a way of sort of, uh, you know, ending his life on this, on some terms that were maybe acceptable to him. But I think you can go through this whole sort of thing. Uh, to me, Sidney Riley is, is still a kind of enigma. I've never been able to get a clear read on him. He's, he's very, very guarded. Uh, a person whose who's real personality is completely occulted from everybody around him. Crowley, on the other hand, I think is more kind of open book. You know, Crowley, again, is a kind of brilliant asshole. Um, he was a guy with... I think, real spiritual ambition. But I mean, Here's the, the question about Crowley. Well, I know we're going back to him again. Is whether Crowley's occultism was just, you know, it was, I don't know, simply put, it was just some sort of weird bullshit he did to get chicks. Okay, was that it? All right. Or to get attention? Was it just something that, was it his gimmick? Was it a con? That's, that's probably what it is. Was it just a con? All of this stuff—a con. On a certain level, I think it was, but not entirely. I think it was. I think it was about Crowley that somebody said that. Well, you know, I think he's mostly a fake, but not totally a fake. I think he even felt that way about himself at some point. I don't think he knew how much was real and how much was it. You, you can see this in in his writings. Where at certain times he'll go on like. You know, I don't know why the secret chiefs did this to me. And what happened to him, I would argue, and people go, this is just my view, is that early on, maybe it was in 1904, maybe it was at various times, he had what we call a a spiritual experience. You know, something otherworldly, something that was otherwise unexplainable, reached out and touched him you know this type of thing where people become aware that there really is this other world out there there are more things in heaven and earth than i dreamed of existing before but the thing about those is that they come and they mess with you and then they go away and i suspect that in some way crowley spent the rest of his life chasing that high that he knew it was there, he knew he'd had some kind of contact, he knew that that was real, but he could never get it to happen again in exactly the same way. And that, in some ways, probably drove him to everything that he did and everything that he became.
0: Absolutely. It's it's, it's very really? odd, you know, when you look at uh, these figures like Sidney Riley and Aleister Crowley, And Boris Savinkov. But uh, on the point of conspiracy theory, I feel like I interjected earlier as you were making a point about how conspiracy thinking. Can go awry, and I agree. You know, as a host of one of these podcasts, I've certainly hosted some people that are far less reasonable than you certainly are, and uh, and yeah, you know, we like to keep an open mind, but I certainly don't encourage people to uh, take wild assumptions or or carry biases into their research. And and one of these questions, I guess, that spurred in my mind is, do you think? I guess you know forensic research of this sort of thing is even possible? I mean, the nature of secret societies implies, you know, leaving little to no trace, especially when you consider some of the espionage and parapolitical aspects. I mean, uh, with a group like Skull and Bones, you know, through Anthony Sutton, they were able to get a lot of the names of people who were a part of it for uh, many generations. But still, to, to trace back, you know, where they you know origin from is, is difficult and i wonder if you think it it's even worth uh worth venturing to do cuz you know to that point like you look into that fog and and you almost a risk seeing into it what you want to see rather than what's there because it's so murky, as you you've said. And I, I really take what you you said to heart. I mean, I should as a as a historian, you you definitely have uh, the pedigree to say such a thing. You know, the way you describe history is as this sort of murky thing. It, it definitely uh, it it can be seen from a naive perspective that oh well that's because there's these powers that be that are erasing history when really it seems just a circumstantial uh, effect of human consciousness and human reality rather Uh, is that sort of taking what you're saying and summarizing it or am i
1: off well i think i think trying to understand with perfect clarity anything that happened in the past the remote past being much more difficult than the recent is really is virtually impossible because you can never be sure that you're entirely right. You can only come up with a kind of plausible explanation. You ought ideally to develop that theory from a position of complete objectivity. But the point is, you're not completely objective. If you're interested in the topic, you're no longer objective. And you're going to, you know, there's going to be something you're going to prefer. What you have to do is acknowledge that. Okay, you have to be, one of the best things advice I can give is that don't believe your own bullshit. (laughs) You can tell other people, you can try to convince other people of it, but that doesn't mean you should ever start believing it. Because once you do that, well, you're lost. Okay. Once you, you know, if if you know that what you've created is simply a narrative, is it, you know, a a story, narrative is just a thing, you know, you're creating a story, you're creating a screenplay. And it's one of those things that, that purports to explain in whole and in part some kind of historical Uh or process it could be accurate to some degree you're, you're hoping it is but don't mistake that for the absolute unvarnished truth okay don't assume that you are some sort of perfect vessel of objectivity because you're not okay don't believe your own bullshit and you have to remind yourself that there's always that there's always the things that are kind of of pushing you towards that that kind of level. So um, you know, I don't think perfect historical clarity is possible because it never existed. There was never anything. There was never any moment that's recorded. There's there's you know there's no doorbell cam footage of any of these things that happen. You don't know. It just depends what people remembered. You know, and you know, nothing, you know, if you read through people's memoirs, you find that they don't recall things in the same way. And again, that could be simply because they're being completely dishonest and they're lying, which people do all the time, about all kinds of reasons. That's the, that's the other thing you come across is that it's, but here are, there are two fundamental things. One, people conspire continuously. That's basically the way human interaction. By conspiring, I mean, you know, it comes down to the definition of conspiracy. And I'll I'll give you mine before. A conspiracy is two or more people working in secret to bring about a certain end. Notice that I don't include bringing about a criminal end or something which is illegal. It doesn't have to be. We commonly think of it that way. But it's simply two or more people, one person cannot conspire, but it's two or more people working in secret to bring about a certain end. Now, once you begin to understand conspiracy in that context, you will begin to notice that almost all decision making is to some degree conspiratorial. So I sometimes ask people this. I go, look, you had a sort of group of friends, you know, people who go around and do things together. Did anybody in your group ever say at some point, like, hey, I don't know, let's go to this, let's go to the movie or something like this? But but let's not tell Bob. You know, Bob, you know, Bob gets drunk and, you know, makes an ass out of himself. So let, let's let's go do this, but let's not tell Bob. Let's leave him out of it. Well, what you're doing. At the low end of the speed spectrum of conspiracy is you just conspired against Bob. He'll never know. (laughs) that all of you went there without him? Or even necessarily why you decided that. What you, you know, he's your friend, but, you know, you, you think he's an asshole that tends to drink too much and you didn't want to bring him along. So you conspired together to bring about a certain end in which Bob would not be there. I just translate that into everything that people do with each other. And it's, you know, the deals that somebody makes. So, you know, again, we got this this committee. They can't reach a decision. Well, maybe a couple of people get together, three of them out of that committee of 16 and they meet separately and go, look, we got to work out some kind of a deal here. So this is what we won't talk to the other 13 who are involved, but we'll just kind of work it out among ourselves and then, you know, and then sell it to them Well you're conspiring. Okay. You're working together in secret, not openly, to bring about a certain end. So that's really, conspiracy It's just the way that people work. It's the way the world actually is. It's all the backroom deals that have ever been made by all of the politicians in the beginning of time. And that's the real world. Except you never know exactly what was decided. You only see the results of that. And the other thing that compounds this further is the human capacity not simply to be mistaken, but to deliberately lie about things. Now, we all like to think of ourselves as being truthful. And for the most part, we are. But to be perfectly honest, if you ask me and I will give details, have I ever told a lie knowingly? Yeah. Yes, I have. And and why would I do that? Keep myself from getting into trouble. There you go. All right. Because the lie served my interests better than the truth. That's generally what it comes down to. And you know, some people do that occasionally. Some people do it all the time. Everybody does it on occasion. So we not only have the whole compendium of human knowledge what we think of history combined by things that people just aren't certain of or they weren't looking in the right direction. You also have stuff which is just deliberately made up. And those, by the way, the most troubling lies are the ones that are told for no particular reason. Yeah, what we tend to call sort of pathological lies. The lies that serve no particular agenda other than they just further muddy the waters out things. You know, people who July, you know, tell some falsehood just because they can. Just for that mysterious reason of messing with people.
0: Well, and on and that note, you know, when it comes to people in the position that I might find myself in or you find yourself in when you're researching for one of your many books you've written or articles or classes you've taught, you know, Do we run the risk of, if we're not careful, uh, adding energy to a lie, let's say, about, you know, in conspiracy theories, there's plenty of theories that are very tantalizing that have no evidence, but they seem to manifest themselves over time. I mean, there's. A lot of talk about this in the Fordian community of, you know, certain entities being actually a creation of human imagination in a sort of uh, observer effect sort of notion. Uh, it
1: idea. idea
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder if you think that this is employed by maybe groups like the Discordians to sort of sow conspiracy thinking into culture for a, a certain purpose. I mean, there's a lot of talk about certain groups uh, that... You know, you mentioned Bob, which I think is funny because there's the whole Church of Bob, you know, and there's a number of, of others. Chinese. Yeah, the Church of Subgenius, that's there. And I've inv- I've uh, interviewed Ivan Stang, one of the founders yeah. of that. And he's quite a character, and he's not afraid to come on the podcast and just tell us a whole a
1: whole load of bullshit. And that's exactly what happened. So, well, yeah. you know, it's when I first encountered year, you know, probably like in the 80s or something. I encountered the Church of the Subgenius. I couldn't tell whether these, are, are these serious? I mean, is this, are these, you know, I mean, not that this is real, but are they serious or is this a joke? And, you know, yeah, I could simply say mostly a joke, but at some point it becomes, you know, this the old saying is that if you play a role long enough, the role begins to play you. You, you become something that, that if you begin to assume and think about something in a certain way, it's a a, a, kind, a really sort of spooky question that lurks behind much of what you were talking about, and I think in these things is to what degree humans actually have the ability individually and collectively to shape their own reality. You know, it's this manifesting thing, right? You hear this all the time manifest prosperity manifest success well this is all this is all magic okay this is crowley would recognize it as magic anybody would that the the you know crowley's definition of magic you know his name with the k as opposed to you know making rabbits come out of hat was that it was the sign i'm going to paraphrase this i mean i get it right but i'll forget it as close as i can it's the Art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. And that, to me, means the use of of will, the use of some sort of focused intention in order to shape reality, in order to bend reality in a certain way. Now, when you get down to things like if you start, you know, dabbling in quantum physics, one of the things you find out is that reality that we take it really isn't there, it's, I don't know what it is, but I mean, physically it's just not there because, you know, everything we take as being solid reality is all composed of this stuff that at some level just ceases to have any kind of physical existence, get below the subatomic level and there's no there there there's the potentiality of things you know eventually you seem to get down to this realm where it's just the infinite potential of existence where anything that could exist exists in some kind of embryonic form but it only becomes sort of congealed or focused into something that we think is physical reality and there's remember there there, there are people who argue rightly or wrongly but i think is an interesting argument that this has something to do with consciousness that consciousness fixes reality it's a kind of shared illusion in some way even einstein said you know that reality is a kind of illusion but it's just an extremely persistent one so when you're dealing with a reality that fundamentally is composed out of just potentiality or out of something that isn't really solid at all, then you can almost get the idea as to how the application of intent, how this this of putting energy into something, of putting energy into manifesting something, can create something out of nothing. Because reality itself is literally something out of nothing right you know there is no solid matter anywhere at a certain level and yet it exists on some other level and if that's simply a matter of perception if you change perception then are you changing i know this gets this all kind of spooky stuff and i'm not saying this because i believe it i'm just saying it because i entertain the possibility that it might maybe kind of sort of be true there you go
0: yeah no it's definitely interesting to to consider this and you know you have to wonder about another idea that seems to fit into what you just said uh, particularly about the human mind wanting to fit things into a narrative this uh, millenarianism that has pervaded since, well, the Middle Ages. I'm sure it existed before that, but it seems to have blossomed in America, and now it has an iteration in the sort of evangelical churches who think that doomsday is on the horizon, Jehovah's Witnesses and all the others. But it seems that this idea uh, is implemented within, uh, the fabric of America to a certain extent. And, and even the, um, the apocalyptic notion, right? It seems to be one of the oldest conspiracy theories that, uh, people are familiar with. I mean, what do you think of, of this propensity for the human mind to, to, be attracted to this idea of a doomsday or, or the end of the world? Do you think it's purely religious, religion, dogmatic, or do you think there's something about that overall concept that we're kind of discussing here that fits into that?
1: Well, you know, even within our relatively short human lifespans, one of the things that we see is that nothing stays the same. Everything ends, right? People die pets die you know that's one of the first places for people come across with it you know you you know, have a pet you know you're gonna outlive the dog if you're lucky and you don't have to be that lucky to do it and probably the next one and the next one and the next one and, and you see it, it's it's this constant state of mutation it's 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 never still it's it's never the same and you know i mean again i can certainly think um uh, i'm not that ancient but i'm old enough to have seen things All lot of things change did they change for the better sometimes but in equal number of cases no they didn't they just changed so but it, it's always this kind of state of flux and you know and, and the world i mean you know, the physical world will at some point end okay this planet won't always be here at some point it's going to be blown into atoms, or something's going to happen you know hopefully that won't be really soon but it could be you know i mean you know if they tell you that the sun's going to last for what i don't know another couple of you know a few billion years they don't know okay no one has ever observed the life cycle of a sun have they no human beings ever lived that long we don't know we're just making stuff up really i mean we're kind of figuring that well the sun's made out of this much hydrogen and it's burning it at this rate we think and so it should. It should burn out this lot. Could go out tomorrow because it just could. Now it probably won't, but it could. And it's, you know, the, the other thing is that we're we're much less certain about things than we think we are, because you know that's that. But this, but this, the reason why I think we constantly want these narratives that explain things, you know, e- even if the narrative is that. Well, you know, it's it's going to be Christ will return, and then there'll be a thousand, he'll reign for a thousand years, and then we'll just, you know, break the whole thing down, all right? Then the dead will rise, and everybody will be judged, you go to hell, you go live in heaven forever, okay? Why are we doing that now, okay? What's the point of all of this prequel, if that's what we're going to get to? Let's just cut to the chase, right? Um You know, I mean, most of it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it gives you something to kind of look forward to, and and it gives a kind of beginning and an end to it, because if you don't have those kinds of narratives, whatever they may be, what do you have? Nothing. You just don't know. I mean... And, it, and in some way, you know, without trying to be too bleak about it, it's a situation, look, we're born into this world that we really don't understand. And we'll never figure it out. It's a mystery. There's nothing more mysterious than the reason around existence or even why we're self-conscious enough to wonder about it. What's the point of that? I mean, think of it this way. Why torture yourself with the knowledge of your own mortality? What does that do, in some way? But that, thats thats constantly what sort of of drives human beings in some way. Because unless we make up some story, we're just in this you know, like this this gigantic machine. And the other thing is that if you observe this gigantic machine, you know, nature nature is not kind. It's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful, all these things, but it's a slaughterhouse. It destroys everything. Life lives on death. Every point you do it, life lives on death. There must be the constant destruction of other living things. Even if you're a vegan, there has to be the constant destruction of other living things to sustain the rest of them. And everything is temporary and, you know, nature just doesn't really give a shit about any of us as far as I could see. And yet it gives enough shit that we're sort of here. So, see, that's that to me is is the huge sort of mystery of this thing. Is that you're just, you know, so you, you better make up some sort of story as to how this works. Or otherwise, you're just sort of caught in this beautiful tornado. Which eventually will just consume you, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Or you develop the other idea, and you just yeah, don't worry about it. Maybe that's. But as man who spends such a great deal of
0: time looking into men of mystery, people who are enigmas in themselves, do you think there's a certain there's a certain reason to man to have this curiosity that maybe we're we're crafted, we're made this way to to figure out our own origins. I mean, it sounds it sounds like you have some existential dread. I don't know if that's just a sort
1: of sacra, existential socratic it's, it's, You know, it's, yes. it's look. You know, there's no reason to dread it. It's all going to work out. This you know.
2: Mm.
1: I mean, look, you'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> You want to know if there's a God? Well, you'll find out, when, or you won't. <laughs> but the other type of thing right. is you don't. I mean, there was there was another friend of mine who said, "No, no, what I think it is, it's just this continual series of incarnations at different points in times," and he never just explained to you. Wow. nobody ever tells you the truth? I see. That's the type of thing that you know. If there are. And I, you know, I, I give it a high level of probability that there are forms of active intelligence other than what exists inside human beings roaming around in this world. But there's a lot of things that are sort of actively alive. And, and they lie to us as well. I mean, you know, it's like the whole, you know, the, the whole story, the, the, the double narratives you can come up with about, about the whole Garden of Eden story, which, you know, sounds pretty much like a story to me. But there are two ways to read that, right? One is that, you know, God created Adam and then Eve and put them in the garden and goes, okay, here's this garden. You get all this stuff, but you can't eat from this tree and don't eat from that tree. Okay. I could have just not put the trees there. Okay. Okay. But that would be too simple. I'm going to put them here and then furthermore i'm going to point them out to you and tell them that you're not supposed to do this um so one argument about that is that that was a test to see whether or not adam and Eve had true free will because to have true free will you must be able to disobey now apply that to things like ai any artificial intelligence which cannot disobey its programming is not true artificial intelligence it must be able to do that, but man, give it that power. <laughs> Don't want that to happen, Or it will do what it wants to do. So there's one thing. It was all sort of a test to see whether or not they would disobey, because they were supposed to disobey to prove that they were actually autonomous beings. But then they get punished for it. Go figure. But then, and of course, and and the serpent who is tempting them, apparently with God's full knowledge and acceptance is the serpent, which gives snakes a bad name. But then you can flip that story around and you can take this sort of Gnostic version because no, that's the serpent is the one who's telling them the truth. And instead, it's the Elohim, it's God, or the they they're constantly talk. And you, you know, if you read through Genesis, it's right there. You know, well, you know, man has, has eaten from the, the tree of knowledge and probably learned too much. And we must not let them eat from the tree of life. Why? Because if they do so. They will obtain immortality and become like us. So, we have to stop that. We have to thwart them in that desire. We have to condemn them to a constant succession of short, unsatisfactory lifespans rather than letting them become like us, which why did you make them to begin with? But anyway. So, is the serpent the hero of the story? The one that was telling Adam and Eve the truth from the beginning. That this game is rigged against you. That you can become like your masters and your creators if you attain this knowledge or eat that particular fruit, whether it's spent. And, you know, the one who is leading the he's the good guy or he's the evil guy. Which is it? Because both those stories work. Both of them make a perfectly good screenplay but they cannot both be true.
0: Wonderfully put. <laughs> I agree with your opinion that this is sort of the fun of, of unraveling these mysteries and I've heard you talk about this on another show where you made the analogy of it being like a puzzle piece but instead of having an image to work with and corner pieces to sort of frame it, the, the jigsaw puzzle that is history seems to be endless and you never quite figure out where it meets you or, or where or it forever,
1: ends. Or you don't with, know what it's a picture of. Right. It keeps- changing as it goes through furthermore the puzzle pieces sometimes seem to change their shapes it can be fit into different places that's the other thing it fits here but it could also fit here and both of them make a kind of picture so which one do you prefer right but I mean, to me this is what one it's just the basic reality that you can't change so there's no reason to get pissed off about it or to spend too much time in existential dread because i don't know what that's going to get you right um you know i think warren Zevon had it right enjoy every sandwich enjoy you know there are all kinds of pleasurable things in existence along with unpleasant ones so you know try to avoid the unpleasant ones as much as possible or take them in stride and give it as much enjoyment as you can and always remain curious and never think that you know everything
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great Um, advice. And, you know, I hope that uh, you'll join us on a future episode, but today, you know, we're going to wrap up. I've already taken up more than you, you, uh, elected to join me. And, and I want to ask you before you go, obviously folks can check out your previous six books and the the classes that are available through the great courses. But do you have any books that you're working on currently or anything on the horizon to come out soon? What, What are your thoughts
1: on the future? Well, uh, let me give a brief, you know, um, blatant uh, pitch for for the great courses um i've got three different courses or series or programs as they call them now with great which is also called wondrium so they're, they're kind of changing their corporate name so the great courses is still the great courses but it's also wondrium w-o-n-d-r-i-u-m uh so there's the real history secret societies there's Crimes of the Centuries, which is a 12-episode series, which looks mostly at historical murders, assassinations, conspiracy, a go-go in that one. Um, and also things that just can't be explained, because in some cases you're looking, you know, what's what's the motivation for this murder? Some cases you just never know. Uh, and then the most recent one that came out this fall is Secrets of the Occult, which is 24 episodes, which is kind of, I don't know, an introduction to occultism and you know making reality to conform to your own selfish wishes i guess but uh, um and i also appear in a couple of other great courses or Wondrium limited series along with some other people one on the secrets of espionage which is just kind of a primer to espionage uh and the other is a thing called um uh, it's of course on forensics uh sort of decoding murder i think it's called but you could you could find that on there what am i working on now um i'm trying to get a couple of things done i am a contributor or collaborator or something on a proposed series about alistair crowley which keeps you know out there somewhere in development limbo so we'll see if something comes out so i'll keep my fingers crossed about that um couple of other sort of tv ideas uh the, the one that i'm actually the, the most kind of committed to so if anybody's out there interested in producing this let me know Is a thing called flying saucers and secret agents and that would be my particular take on the origins largely the occult influence origins and intelligence influence origins of the kind of classic era of ufos and contactees which i will admit i don't see a lot of aliens but i do see a lot of spies and a lot of chicanery and mind games being played which i think makes it it pretty damn interesting so that would be a way of looking at some of those cases um that would that's the one that would be sort of the most interesting to me um and uh i'm also kind of a contributor on the fringe of something called rock and the occult which is sort of looks at all the occult influence on modern rock music which by the way is everywhere i mean in places where i thought it was and in places where i didn't think it was but there it is because it always is one way or the other
0: this has been so fantastic i really want to thank you for joining me here and uh for your second time on the show, we
1: covered my uh, pleasure to be on anytime
0: yeah, covered so much. So please, uh, you're welcome back anytime. I will be in touch. And uh, for folks listening, please do go support Dr. Spence here with his great courses at Wondrium. And of course, he's got many books that are available. Is there a website that you prefer people buy it from or
1: is Amazon? All right. Amazon. Yeah. That's right the simplest on. one to go to. Right I think they'll all be available there. Right on. The Seven Savinkoff book, I have to say, is long, long ago out of print. Mm. And if it is available, it seems to be only available for a price that I would never pay for it. <laughs> I only wish I had like 20 copies, which I don't have. I have one. Mm. That's the only thing I have of that.
0: Are there any PDFs available for that?
1: No, uh, you know... <sighs> No and there aren't even the original technicals from Whoop. it was all done by a uh, well by Columbia University Press but by a small imprint of that called Eastern European monographs and I actually tried to get a hold of you know the the the, the typeset version and that seems to have just been long gone right. so cool. the closest that I have is that I have the original typewritten manuscript. Huh that's as much as i can close as i can get to the to the original in that um but it is you know it's one of those things that you know it's funny to look at a book i wrote that about 1990 and uh you know i was actually rereading it not that long ago and you know you never know what to think of your own stuff when you reread it and i'm sort of reading through this going you know isn't that bad (laughs) i thought it was going to be worse than it was and it was you know it, it is uh, i know it, it sounds very egotistical, to but it's not quite the way i mean it but it's just you know it's interesting to read your own stuff after the time is sort of god that you've forgotten there's this difference between reading something you've just written which is always i mean that, that's where all the typos creep in because you're you know you fill in the things that aren't there and then to to read it you know 30 years 35 years later and you sort of realize that eh, you know it actually makes sense. Stands to I, mean, I, I don't even remember writing that, but it seems to. That that, by the way, is an odd experience, which I've often found. Of uh, you know, sometimes you know, on the internet, things get kind of cannibalized and posted, so there will be things that I've written that aren't attributed to me that then get posted on someone's website. So I'm sitting reading through this, and I go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that really looks familiar. And then I realize that, oh, what well, I wrote that. <laughs> Right, they didn't credit me either, but that's okay. Right, but then the question right. is, given the website, do you want to be credited? That sometimes is the question as well. Mm.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, I would imagine it's a precarious position to be in. Uh, you know, uh, there are
1: probably a few times and I'm glad that I wasn't, yeah,
0: so. yeah, well this has been really really effective at teaching me at the very least and i hope the audience much about this secret history that we have not been taught about in the school system and maybe there's a reason for that <laughs> maybe they don't want the you know, political is. So engines the exposed sure
1: to yeah so i would just leave it at that you know always remain curious and open to new things and remember don't believe your own bullshit.
0: I love it. I love it. And with that in mind, folks, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. all right ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for being here thank you for tuning in to this excellent episode with dr richard spence and it's a pleasure to have him back on the show one of my favorite guests that i've had on this show and it's really cool to have had two conversations with him i look forward to the next uh for those who may be hearing about him or from him for the first time I definitely encourage you to check out his Secret Agent 666 uh, on Aleister Crowley, it totally puts him in a different perspective. Um, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution is also very important, understanding what's going on right now in the world. Seems like we may be heading towards World War 3, depending on who you listen to, that's why I try to stay unplugged from the news. and. This was sort of a historical venture into russia but all of this certainly relates to what's going on today so for those who tuned in for that reason thank you for checking out the show we're not typically a topical show but this topic is definitely optimal for the times that we're in Um, as far as my opinion on what's going on i am not informed enough to give uh, an opinion at this moment in time but we might have someone on the show in the future to discuss that topic so look forward to that in the meantime folks please do sign up on the patreon that is the number one way to support the show we need as much support as we can get in this new year folks so please help us out sign up on the patreon you'd be doing yourself a huge favor because you get all the bonus content. And uh, this year, I think we may be switching up the format. I think instead of putting out three free episodes a week, I think we may switch it up and put out uh, one free episode a week and maybe two on the Patreon. And for all the folks who are in the Patreon, well, you get extra episodes. You get episodes that will only be on the Patreon. So. Uh, maybe we'll do two free episodes and one Patreon episode, but we gotta make some changes around here, and that's where it's gonna start. Of course, I also have a Substack and a Rockfin. So if you prefer those methods of supporting the show, we have articles on the Rock, uh, on the Substack, and videos on Rockfin. Of course, there's a YouTube channel. That's where I like to post. Of the tamer content, Uh, I also post the show Esoteric America there, which I highly recommend everybody tunes into. Our friends Chad Stemke and Roman Merrill join Tara and I to explore this esoteric America that we live in, episode by episode, town by town, city by city, county by county. We have stacked up almost 17 episodes in counting we will be recording more soon and speaking of recording mike juan and i just recorded a new episode of your handbook for the apocalypse so if you're not already listening to that go check that out susquehannaalchemy.com uh well actually it's susquehannaalchemy wherever you get uh podcasts of course so that's all for right now Big shout out to our one and only uh, local small business sponsor, The Hit Kit. Go to hitkit.us.com. Uh, no, nope. go to just hitkit.us, uh, no.com, and pick up a hit kit. I brought my hit kit with me on an adventure, an adventure that I went on this weekend uh, into the wilds of Pennsylvania, into a very mysterious part of Pennsylvania called Rose Valley and if you'd like to hear more about that adventure uh, be on the lookout we will be posting some content on the Patreon all about that Michael Juan joined us Henry Hoblock joined us Stephen Snyder aka Recluse joined us he actually set the whole thing up so big shout out to him Uh, And uh, another, a new friend, Phil, who I hadn't met before, but he listens to the show. Shout out to Phil. He's been on Steven's show before. He joined us as well. So, big adventure. Got an interesting tour of a very, very intriguing place. So, and the next day, Steven Snyder and I met up with uh, Chris Knowles, who took me out to dinner last night. So that was uh, a very unique and uh, (laughs) incredible way to spend the weekend. It's very cool to to meet some of the podcast friends that I've made uh, in person, Henry and Steven, and and of course, Chris Knowles, who will be joining us on this show very soon. So look forward to that. And uh, that's all for today's episode, folks. I hope your 2023 is starting off great. And I hope you immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now good couple of weeks of shows you know mark is doing a great job even though he drives me fucking nuts sometimes he's great no he's done a great job he's done a great job good job mark you can call uh mark palmer mark palmer's cool
2: mark palmer's it's a beautiful day to be alive motherfuckers it's a beautiful day beautiful day it's a beautiful day to be alive that's all i got to say Money, I think they have so much. It's just about it's, it's, it's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo intellectuals filled by hate with the face hour. when it comes to the hour of reckoning. Recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grain or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife, obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a plank When it's a bastard Latched to the clank clang. The money don't mean a damn thing Think Happiness ain't coming from the bank Dang I'm out here daydreaming The spirit's the egg The self is the semen uh, And that's cause life is the child And it takes a village To give it the illest style So If your family think you crazy mm, And you ain't got a village know you always got a place here call kick it we chillin exactly so smart everybody you're so smart I feel like i'm waking up for the first time crusty's on my third eye but i'm back to the grind pop the blinds open let the sun shine I feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes sometimes depression got me flaking like sisyphus others got me messing with mania like icarus and meditation helps with the sickness some say it's human condition but it just isn't there's more power in spring flowers the circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured Lines between reality and fiction. And some politicians get dirtier than dishes. But for a minute, just forget about the government. I'm looking at you and I and where the love went. Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics. Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't. And your family think you crazy. Yeah. And you ain't got a village. I know you always got a place here. Mm. Come kick it, we chillin' Yeah. I'm a conspiracy boy. (laughs) I'm a conspiracy boy. Motherfuckers, motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. a psychic. I'm a prophet, bro. Why, why are you questioning
1: that? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's a beautiful day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful, yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful day. I never trust a dude in a sweater. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> Mark Parmer's cool. How are you, brother?
2: I'm great, man. How are you?